Rove McManus, Sam Frost. Today FM. Steve Avery's lawyer, Jerry Buting, joins us on the line. Good morning, Jerry. Good morning. Good morning. Now, is Jerry okay? Should I be saying Jerome, Mr. Buting? Yeah, Jerry's fine. Okay, good, good. The, the series Making a Murderer has just captivated the world. Yeah. Uh, how has it been for you since the release of the documentary? Well, it, it has been surreal, to, to say the least. Uh, you know, I've, I've had contacts both on social media and, and through emails from every place in the world almost, um, including a great deal of contacts from Australia and the U.K. and, and Europe and South America, South Africa. It's just been incredible. Well, Rove and myself, we actually watched the series together over at three nights. And I think, you know, I, I went uh, to bed one night uh, yelling at my boyfriend, being like, I can't believe it. And there was so much emotional investment that both, you know, Rove and myself and our partners were just watching this and we were so frustrated and we were upset. And, you know, how does it feel to be you and you've invested so much time in your life into this case? Well, the outcome was very difficult, as I'm sure you could probably see on um, the faces of Dean and I at the, at the final press conference. But, um, you know, we were not... We went into this case. It was a very difficult case. I mean, anytime you want to... The evidence is pointing towards a police frame-up defense is not something that you're you're happy about doing. Um, it's a very difficult kind of a defense, and when you add to that the incredible amount of negative pretrial publicity that, that about false evidence, really, mm. um, it, you know, we knew that we were behind the eight ball, so to speak, at the very beginning. But you know, any good defense attorney, by the time you get to the end, and by the time you've done your closing arguments. You really think you should win, yeah. and you know you're convinced of reasonable doubt. And um, the difference in this case is that we really should have won. There really was reasonable doubt, just an abundance of it. Oh, absolutely. Um, and you know it was very disappointing. The jury was out for a long time. I can tell you, episode eight is emotionally the most difficult one for me to watch because that's the one with the the verdict and the waiting for the verdict and, um, you know, the agony as you're, you know, pacing the halls and all day long wondering is, is there going to be questions from the jury and what's going to happen. And, you know, there were some questions from the jury that, that aren't in the documentary that actually made it look like they were looking favorably on the defense, but then they came back with the, the verdict and, of course, that was devastating. Yeah, well, um, I read somewhere, and I'm not sure uh, how accurate it is, but apparently there were two jury members that were related uh, to members of the county, and also a jury member has another jury member has come out saying that they feared for their personal safety, and that's why uh, they convicted him of guilty. Um, how do you feel when you hear comments like this, and do you just get as frustrated as us, on you know, as everyday people? Well, very much so. In fact, um, even more recently, there's, uh, uh, there's one of the uh, magazines actually contacted apparently 13 of the 16 oh. jurors, including the alternates, and and one of them who was convinced of his guilt said that he was obviously guilty because he raped and tortured that woman, and Teresa suffered, and of course that was not evidence ever presented no. in court. 
in this case. And so that, you know, obviously they based their verdict on evidence outside of the courtroom mm. that we were unable to defend against because the state never called Brendan Dassey. And that's the part where we, it talks about where we were trying to shadow box. We knew that the information was out there and they were being instructed to, to ignore it. But um, How can you ignore you know, it? It's everywhere. It's, it was very difficult. And we did end up with a juror who was the father of um, a deputy in Manitowoc County. Um, although he was at a lower level and he had jail responsibilities, he didn't have any direct involvement in the case. Nevertheless, you know, the, the other jurors, we don't get to pick a jury. Mm. In, in America, what happens is that, that you get a jury pool and from which the, the judge can strike people for cause if there's obvious bias and they say they can't set aside their feelings, and then each side gets peremptory strikes where you can, in, in a homicide case like this, we had six strikes where we could remove jurors for whatever reason we wanted. But you end up, what you end up doing is removing the worst of the, the worst, the worst yeah, jurors yeah, yeah. You, you can. And even doing that, we still ended up with you know, somebody who was related to Manitowoc police and another person who was... Uh, I think whose husband or maybe it was the husband of somebody who worked in the clerk's office in Manitowoc. So, you know, we were, we started off with, uh, out of 130 potential jurors that had filled out questionnaires ahead of time, 129 of them had already expressed the opinion they thought he was guilty. Mm. And yet, you know, the judge instructs people, well, you're supposed to just put that aside. Can you put that aside and decide the case only on the evidence and, you know, if they say yes, then they're in. And it's up to us to then use our few peremptory strikes to remove those that we, we think aren't being honest about that. Now, when it comes to uh, the series itself, when did the filmmakers approach you about this? Or were they already shooting a story on Stephen and then you just came in as his lawyers? How did it actually come about? Yeah, they were already involved. They had they came almost immediately when uh, there was a front page article about Stephen Avery after he was charged with this. He was the I think still the to date the only DNA exoneree who's ever been charged with a serious crime like this. Um, you know, once they get out after however many years of wrongful imprisonment, and so it was. The New York Times ran a front-page article. It piqued the interests of these two filmmakers. They flew to Wisconsin, and they were involved for about four months before Dean and I were hired onto the case. Mm. And they approached us. Uh, I was hesitant to agree to, you know, to participate in the project initially because you just don't know. Well, well first of all, you're concerned about whether it's going something's going to air publicly before the the jury's picked, and it might affect the whole uh, jury pool and, you know, present evidence that may or may not come into court. But when we learned what the project was, it was clear it wasn't going to air until long after the trial. And the more I thought about it, the more I thought it might be interesting for as a, as a public education uh, project for people to understand really what it was like or what it is like to have to prepare for the defense of a serious criminal trial like this. And, of course, we didn't know whether the prosecution was participating as well. They were, you know, they were offered the opportunity to participate by the filmmakers. And 
uh, initially refused, but I, I understand that the now current sheriff uh, did at one point give a lengthy interview with them, but when it came time to sign the releases, the legal releases to allow you know, it to be aired, which everybody had to do, they refused to do so. Yeah. So, so that's why they, their side didn't end up as much in the film. Um, but they nevertheless included a lot of the press conferences with the state uh, where other reporters were asking the prosecutors questions and sort of indirectly they were interviewing them through these other reporters. Mm. Has Stephen Avery seen this documentary? He has not. Uh, they do not allow, you know, Netflix is a streaming um, yeah. media and they do not allow streaming into the prisons in Wisconsin. Uh, as of now, they have not released this on DVD. I don't know if they will in the future, but even then, you know, prisoners don't have DVD players where they can watch movies and things of that nature. And even when a lawyer wants to go into a prison visiting a client and show them something that's on a laptop because it's in a digital format, you have to get special permission to yeah, right. do that. Have you spoken to him uh, about it and, and what the a fallout has been publicly? Well, I can't talk about, you know, communications that I have directly with a client it's sure. because it's attorney-client privileged. No, that's right. Uh, even, even, even though he, he has another attorney who's now going to be representing him, um, I, I've acted as a sort of an informal advisor for years with him, and I just can't get into those kinds of discussions. Well, what are, what are his options now? Obviously, um, the end of the series has led to uh, a lot of um, uh, people via social media. There's, there's various... Um, I signed a petition. Petitions, <laughs> yeah, that are going around and people yeah. wish, wishing they could do something to yeah. help. Is there actually any option left for Stephen at this point? And will any, any of this um, public support make a difference? I think it can make a difference. I think it's already made a difference. Uh, as a practical matter... His direct appeals are over. He doesn't have the usual opportunity to, you know, just you know raise an issue that that's already been raised and have it reconsidered. And um, Brendan Dassey's case is still on appeal in in one of the courts in America, but uh, Mr. Avery's are not is not. But there is an opportunity to come back if there's newly discovered evidence. Mm. You can file a motion even though your appeals are done. If there's newly discovered evidence that you, you weren't negligent in failing to uncover, then you can do that. And I think uh, what this, this documentary has done, it's provoked a lot of people to come forward with information and tips and um, potential witnesses that I've been gathering. I've, I've just gotten thousands of emails and, and tweet contacts. And, um, and in addition, I've had you know, contacts from people, from scientists all over the world, really, that have looked at the science part of the documentary where they talked about the blood in the EDTA oh, yeah. pre preservative. What are they saying about that? See, I think that's well, very the, sus. That the science has has improved significantly. The ability mm. to detect items has improved. And there's, they've also got some ideas of different types of tests completely that might be useful uh, with some of the questions that are presented that were not available at the time of the trial. Yeah. So I'm not, I can't get into the real specifics of all that, but there, there are people that have, 
that have presented information that I think might be very useful uh, in a, a motion for a new trial. And there's also the indication from the jurors of possible, uh, you know, misconduct in the rendering of their verdict that yeah. uh, that's complicated under the rules of the legal rules in America, what you can and can't have jurors talk about. But that's certainly something that that's promising as well, I think. Now, strangely in all of this, are you aware of you and your, your co-counsel, Dean Strang, have become sex symbols in a way? You've become new age heartthrobs? There's and, and memes with love hearts all around. You've become, you've become in a strange way, internet sensations in, in a, a circumstance I think you would have never thought was going to happen. Have you, are you aware of all of this? I am aware of it, I, and that is probably the most bizarre part of this whole uh, fallout. And uh, my 21-year-old daughter is <laughs> totally creeped out by the idea that her father has become an Internet heartthrob. But, you know, it, it's, it's amusing, it's flattering, but, you know, we have to take that with a grain of salt. Yeah. And, it's because um, you're the nice guys, that's why. I, I guess. I'm not, I'm not quite <laughs> sure why it is, actually, but it's... Um, it's been an interesting, uh, interesting phenomenon, to say the least. Yeah. Now, I don't know if you can even answer this question, but after all these years, do you yourself have any theory? Quite clearly, you believe Stephen is innocent, and if it's not him, do you have any theory of, of who it could have been, and was that something that, that got to be presented at all? I do have theories. I've had theories all along, and unfortunately there, was, there were pretrial rulings where the judge prevented us from, during the trial, pointing the finger at any other particular suspects. But how can they and the do reason that? For that it, it was really kind of a, a, a terribly disappointing decision. And um, there, is, there are rules in most of the states in America that, so that you're not just sort of blowing smoke and confusing the jury about right. what, what's on trial. You can't randomly pick out people and start accusing them of being the perpetrators. Mm. So you, you have to show some kind of legitimate tendency to the, to the crime, crime scene and whatnot. But we had that here. We had many other people who had access, opportunity. But the one thing we weren't able to prove was that these people had specific motives mm. to kill her. But we said, well, wait a minute. In, in America, the state, state does not have to prove motive. Yeah. They have to prove intent, but they never have to prove why somebody killed another person. So why are you making the defense prove the motive of a third party before you can even offer them to the jury? Mm. And, if, in fact, it wasn't very clearly the law before the Stephen Avery case, uh, but the judge ruled against us, and then on appeal, the Court of Appeals, in, in essence, grafted that onto the law to make it more difficult for him and other people. Mm. That's one of the things I really hope that, that is changed by the outcry here, because what we were, were able to do is point out things that the police did not do in their investigation, things that a, a unbiased, objective law enforcement would have and should have done. You know, in any homicide, obviously a spouse or a boyfriend or, you know, somebody who's close to the victim is immediately the suspect. Yeah, I and remember you saying that. Certainly. And yet in this case, the... Uh, you know, just as one example of possible police bias, they didn't do any of that. No. They didn't check out other people's alibis, and there were others as well. So 
Uh, and then the ex-boyfriend you know, was helping the police, and it's like, whoa, 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 what's happening here? What's happening here? And no one's asking any questions, and I just found it very sus. I've got a, I've got a question, and again, I'm not sure if you're able to answer this, um, but do you think that if Stephen Avery didn't sue for wrongful incarceration for $36 million, do you think that he would have got framed for this murder? Boy, that's a good question. I, I don't really know. I mean, it's it's hard for... That's my theory, anyway. <laughs> yeah, it, I mean, it, that certainly provided motivation, uh, you know, a human motivation to try and uh, avoid the the scandal and embarrassment that he was causing mm. to the, the county and law enforcement people up there. Whether that, you know, whether they disliked him enough anyway... Even without that, that this, it would have provoked some misconduct. I don't know, mm. um, but certainly in this case, it, it just—we went where the evidence led us, and it was so su- suspect that this conflict of interest, and that they were telling the public that they had withdrawn from the investigation, the Manitowoc wasn't involved, and then it comes out that not only were they involved, they were volunteering to be the ones that searched his house yeah. and his property. And then that they found, Manitowoc officials found virtually every important piece of evidence that was used against him. Mm. So that, I think that has really shocked a lot of the viewers and um, caused a lot of uh, angry responses and, and, you know, towards Manitowoc County. And it's given them a black, a black eye that, frankly, they deserve. Yeah, yeah. I, think, I think a lot of people were, were let down. I think you were even talking about it when the verdict came out. It, it's a sign of a flawed... Uh, legal system. I know here we are on the other side of the world being so impassioned by it. For you, who was was in there, was it a real low for you afterwards that even made you reconsider your chosen profession or or lose faith in the system? And and how difficult then was it to to keep going? Well, it's not my first rodeo, so to say, so to speak. You know, I have lost before, I have won before, and... um, I won't say that it, it questioned my, uh, you know, my, my whole purpose in life and my whole career and, and why I do what I do, but it was very disappointing. And, you know, one of the problems, you know, Americans uh, tend to have a, almost an, an arrogant view that, that we do things the right way, the best way, that we have the best, whether it's health care or what it might be. Um, and when it comes to the justice system, there's, you know, we have a great system on paper. There's, there's no question about that. It may, it may, may well be the best in the world, but on, uh, on in the field, the way it's actually play, plays out is not at all like it is on paper. You know, the presumption of innocence that is a hallmark of our system uh, does not apply anymore, particularly in a high-profile case where the media. And we see media abuses here as well. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, that people walk into court and they, they really expect the defense to, to prove they're innocent, um, or at least they're, they're not willing to start off with a, the a real presumption of innocence. The burden of proof, you know, requiring the prosecution to prove their case rather than the defense to prove their innocence, you know, these are things that... Uh, are very important and treasured, and, and part of it's public education, part of it is just cynicism that 
you know, the American public has, uh, has lost faith in a lot of their their systems, actually. And, you know, when you see, what I tell people is one of the things that comes out of this is when you see somebody on TV doing what we call the perp walk, you know, in the black and white striped suit with shackles mm. um, or the orange jumpsuit, you know, people have to understand that, that, that those are staged events that yeah. law enforcement does deliberately to try and convey, hey, we got the right guy here, and this guy may be dangerous. That's why he's shackled the way he is. Yeah. And, you know, this, if nothing else, this film should show people that when, when next time they see that on their television that they've got to stop back, step back and say, well, wait a minute, this really doesn't mean that this person is guilty. Yeah. Um, and even when you hear that the person has confessed, you know, law enforcement will say that they've arrested the gentleman or the individual and he's confessed to the crime. Yeah, the the experience with the Brendan Dassey part of this case oh, is uh, shocking, and and people do have to understand that. Wait until you hear how and why someone said what the police are saying they exactly. said. Exactly. Well, it's an incredible story and and one that I'm sure is is not quite finished yet. So we thank mm. you very much for your time this morning. We thank you very much for your time this morning, Jerry Buting. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, thank you so much. I could talk to you for hours. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you're very welcome, and uh, I appreciate you having me. Yeah, absolutely. Not a worry. Thanks so much. Take care. Bye-bye.